Morning, everybody. Um, you know, since day one of this class back in, uh, when did we start this? Was it the end of August, beginning of September? September 13th, that's right. Um, I've been trying to remember to bring this in. It's all. The Understanding Dispensationalists, this is a good book, small, and uh, um, it's written by one of our guys, so to speak. Um, and it's a good book to read. I think we have this in the library. I borrowed Joe's, I've got to get it back. Okay, uh, let's begin with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for uh, giving us your word. We ask, O oh Lord, now that you would bless our time in it, that you would cause us to understand it. And we pray these things for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's turn to Amos. We've been to Hosea, we've been to Isaiah, and saw how the apostles handled it. So let's go to Amos chapter 9. And verses 11 and 12. Amos comes after uh, Jonah, I believe. Hosea. Joel, right? Yeah, Joel, after Joel. I got my J's mixed up. A long time ago, I memorized the minor prophets with the first letter, and sometimes I get Joel and Jonah. Uh, Obadiah Jonah, that's how it goes. Okay, so Amos 9, 11 and 12. I still hear, I still hear rustling, so... I'll, I'll give you another second. It takes a while to find the minor prophets that you're looking for. So. Vern, Vern Poitras. Um, I'll give you the blurb here on the back about him. Uh, Masters of Literature from the University of Cambridge. Uh, PhD from Harvard University. Doctor of Theology from University of Stellenbosch. South Africa is professor of New Testament, New Testament interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary. So that's why I say he's one of our guys. He's a Westminster uh, professor. And Westminster is the feeder seminary for the OPC uh, for the most part. What's the title of it again? Understanding Dispensationalists. So um, that's the approach. He, he very, in a very fraternal way, he, he approaches you know, dispensationalists for what they are, which is our brothers. So, um, he just, uh, kind of, in a very simple way, uh, provides an analysis uh, of how they think, how dispensationalists think about the Bible. Okay, so Amos 9, 11, and 12. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. If you have the ESV, which I'm reading from, uh, the header should say the restoration of Israel. And that's what it's talking about, right? When it says booth of David or tent of David, What's he referring to but Israel? And if you look at the context, it's talking about restoring their fortunes, restoring them to the land, planting them in the land, 
from which they'll never again be uprooted. Okay. So, looking at uh, any cross-references that we might have, if you have a cross-reference Bible, uh, you'll see Acts 15 pop up. This, This prophecy of Amos is discussed in the New Testament. So we will go. We'll go there. Acts fifteen. Sure. Yeah, nation. Uh, what's that? If, if Am I going to get to that later? Yeah. Um, in Amos, was it? Uh, let's see. It's. Uh, it was verse twelve. Nations. Yeah. That's what Gentiles means. Gentiles means the nations. Uh, historically, that's what it's meant. There's a spiritual meaning of Gentile now, um, and we'll have a chance to talk about that later. But um, basically, it means everybody else out there among the nations. God's, God had one nation in the Old Covenant period, and the Gentiles, or the Goyim, which is what they refer to the, the nations, uh, is the word, that's where we get the word Gentiles. Uh, Ethne in the Greek. I'm not sure about the. Uh, must be from the Latin, I'm guessing. Um, but the actual word Gentile, because ethne in the Greek, goyim in Hebrew, and so I'm guessing it's a, a Gentile root. A oh, Gentile has a Latin root. Excuse me. Oh, so Acts 15. Verses 16 and 17. Now this is the Jerusalem Council where they're gathering together the apostles and other elders to discuss the question of whether you need to be circumcised. Uh, You need to embrace the whole ceremonial law in order to be a part of the people of God. Massive question. It's dealt with not only here, but in the epistle to the Galatians and Romans as well. So it's, it's arguably the paramount issue is what... How do you bring the nations in to unite to the God of this covenant? Is it through Judaism and you add Christ as the Messiah? Or are there certain elements of Judaism that are discarded because they just pointed to the Messiah who has come? So huge question. Um, A lot of the converts from Judaism, so to speak, into uh, Christianity, a lot of the Pharisaical converts, they were still insisting that people be circumcised. So that's why the Jerusalem Council happened. You could, look at, you could read the whole chapter to understand better what's going on there. And the, the preceding language, too, of chapter 14. Okay, so 15 and verses 16 and 17 of Acts. After this, this is... Uh, James quoting uh, Amos 9 that we just, we just read. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. He goes on to make a recommendation 
that they communicate to the churches that the only thing you need to worry about as far as the ceremonial law is, and this, this turns out to be the position of the council, the only thing you need to worry about is not necessarily scandalizing the Jews because uh, we don't want to alienate them from the gospel. A lot of times you see Paul talking the same way that James is here. Uh, and then he lists off some things that, to avoid even the appearance of. So we don't scandalize needlessly uh, Jewish people. But as far as circumcision, the question is, that's not necessary. Um, but it's how he handles this prophecy of Amos dealing with national Israel, its rest- restoration to divine blessing, their restoration uh, to favor and to the land. He takes this language, and what's he doing with it? Interestingly, look at verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. With what does the word of Amos that we just looked at, with what does that word that prophecy agree. Looking at the context, James is talking about Peter's experience when he had seen the light, was made to see the light. Previous to this, in the book of Acts, it's recorded in the book of Acts, when he was sent to Cornelius. So, here, let's look at uh, verse 14. Simeon, Simon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as is written in Amos 9. And then he quotes it. So what's the significance of that? Does everybody see the significance of that? James says, Peter just related that God is taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Okay, so it's the Gentiles coming into the kingdom now. The Gentiles being united with the one people of God. Being added to, grafted to, that one olive tree of the people of God. And he says, with that, Amos agrees. When when he says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. So James's point is that Peter's revelation about the Gentiles being included in the kingdom is what the prophets agree on, including Amos 9, 11, and 12, which originally seems to deal with national ethnic Israel. In the handling of the New Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament dealing with national Israel, their return to divine blessing, they're being planted in the land, 
are always handled this way. Everywhere you turn in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament want us to see that. That these prophecies dealing with national Israel returning to blessing, returning to the land, enjoying its fruitfulness forever, is fulfilled in the adding of of the nations to the one people of God, the non-Jewish Gentiles, Goyim. Uh, It's always the same. The words of the prophets about rebuilding the tent of David agree with this, says James, namely that God is taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. Any comments or questions about that before we move on to talk about a few other things? Yes, Addy. I just wanted to make sure Brian knows that isn't just construed as. So basically, the national Israel of Amos is redefined as the church by the apostles. As long as you understand church to mean Gentile and Jew together. Like the, the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. It's being fulfilled in Christ yeah. and in union with him, a, a church composed of Jews as well as Gentiles. Yes. That's the earth-breaking news. That's, see, in the Old Testament, it was promised that the nations would be blessed through the Jewish people. So it's not... When Paul talks about a mystery that was not revealed uh, in prior times about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom, it wasn't that the Gentiles, that's not the the mystery that was being revealed, that the Gentiles are coming in. That was to happen. The mystery of it was that they would enjoy the same spiritual blessings, be united and become one people, as one people of God, being made making the two into one new man, like Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 3. Taking the two and making them one, that was the mystery that was hidden in times past. Yes, Brett? I I just like the phrase um, in verse 18, known from of old, because a major contention, depending on what flavor of dispensationalist you are, is that when Christ came to establish his kingdom, the Jews, because they rejected him, that forced him to go to the cross. It was actually a mistake. And the church is, you know, parenthetical and is what they would say. But this known from of old kind of devastates that argument, saying, hey, this was the intended purpose all along. This is, this, we're not just a parenthetical mistake. That's actually uh, uh, what Barth uh, said there for people on the recording. Uh, this language about known from of old, this inclusion of the Gentiles as the one people of God, being plan A from the beginning is what this, this message is when he says known from of old, undercuts the argument of, of many dispensationalists that this whole parenthetical period where God stops dealing with his people to let the Gentiles have their church before he resumes operations with plan A, picks it up again with the Jews at a future period, that that's all unknown to the Old Testament, that that whole thing is sort of like a, uh, yeah, a plan B. I'll go forward with this church idea. And the idea here that the, the many dispensationalists teach 
is that Christ came to offer to the Jews, as their Messiah, a kingdom, a political kingdom, throwing out the Romans, doing very earthly and political things, a kingdom of this world, that Jesus came to offer them, a kingdom of this world, in a very Davidic sense, just a minute, But let's think about that for a minute. Wouldn't that mean, I mean, what if they'd accepted him? He wouldn't have been sacrificed to, to pay for our sins. He wouldn't have died. So how could that not be a part of plan A? How could that be something? Surprise, I have to die. I have to pay for the sins of my people with my vicarious death, substitutionary atonement. That too would have to be a part of the plan B. Where he's rejected by Israel... He doesn't get his political kingdom and his, his earthly power, and he's instead put to death. That's a huge problem. Can you see that? The death of Christ for his people was the plan A from the beginning. That's what all the signs and symbols and shadows pointed to. The Passover lamb, everything. Going back to Genesis 3.15, when God announced the covenant of grace... And he clothed their nakedness with the skins of the lamb. It all began back there. It's been plan A from the beginning that this lamb of God would come away to take away the sins of the world. Those who would believe in him from the world. So how could that be something that only happened as a result of his rejecting, or their rejecting his offer, hey, I'll be your king, the Davidic king you've been waiting for? That's a huge problem. A massive, fatal problem. Thanks for pointing that. You know, it, it, we, we talked about the fact that dispensationalism has morphed from, you know, Cofield and Darby and all this. Because one thing I'm, I was kind of curious about is how did they, de- how how would they then deal with prior to Abraham? You know, Enoch, uh, Noah, Job was considered a contemporary. But we know Job was considered righteous. And he looked forward to the coming. And, and all this stuff that happened, you know, because I think it'd be a record scope, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why they made it to say, okay, that, well, that's that dispensation over there. But now we got a new one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And you get the seven or eight, or how many ever you can divide this stuff up. And, and, and it sounds like once you start arguing with them, the argument falls apart. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the more progressive, I guess, uh, dispensationalists have sort of gotten down to almost covenant theology. Arguably, you, you, yeah. Because you really can't, how are you going to deal with him? Well, you can't. Because if, if, if Seth, the line of Seth was godly, and they look forward to the promise, well, okay, he wasn't from the line of Abraham. He wasn't a Jew. Uh, like progressive dispensationalists, they're sensitive to the implications of that argument. And so they'll say things like, uh, they did not know about Christ per se. They didn't know about Jesus of Nazareth being in Christ. Well, of course, nobody argues that they knew his name and that uh, they didn't have the specifics. But they still want to get away from the idea that they had faith in Christ, in the God's anointed, 
coming to perform this role. So they'll say things like, well, they, were faith, they had faith in God, in God's program, in God's program of that particular dispensation. If they're living in this period of Old Testament period, let's say after Adam, but before Abraham, were they faithful to God? Did they have faith in God in, in a general way? So that's how they try to get around that. Colin, did you have something? Yeah, um, there was a verse in, or more than a verse, but there was a verse in John where he said, he, knowing that they would make them king, hid on a mountain so that they couldn't. How does that make any sense with he? wanted to have them make him king, but they refused, so he died. I thought about that the other day, too, and that's a great verse to bring up because I forgot about it. And uh, Very good. Yeah, I mean, so they wanted to make him king, but his kingdom was not of this world. Okay. Uh, his kingdom comes um, without notice, so to speak. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. They would treat me like their political king. They would pick up weapons and overthrow the Romans. And that's who they were actually looking for. The, 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 the later revolts against Roman rule in the late 60s AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed uh, under Titus, and later the Bar Kokhba revolt, another generation later, in the 130s, I believe, they were all expecting the Messiah to be this political ruler. So in Jesus' own day, when they're like, this guy could be him, let's make him king. And he wasn't delivering. He wasn't there to preach a kingdom that they would, that they wanted. They wanted a king of this world, uh, a Davidic king, very much like King David, to come along and lead the people in, against their enemies with swords, etc. And not only did he tell Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world, but when they tried to make him a king, the Jews tried to make him a king, he went away and hid because they, he, they didn't get it. But dispensationalism also doesn't get it. They're trying to make that kingship that he was offering them a political kingdom, an earthly kingdom, when in so many different ways, including that passage, they speak loudly against this understanding. Yes? I Indeed. God's plans to be frustrated by humans, and I just think of, I just, I'm like, we are not that powerful. Like, to think it's like, oh, well, they didn't do what I wanted, so I'm going to change my plan, is to make God a lot less than what he is. And the centerpiece of his plan for a sinful race, that is the substitutionary atonement of this Lamb of God, how, you know... How could that be forced upon God's plan by? It's like, oh, that was the seat of this man's decision. It's like, oh, whoops, son, they didn't do what we were supposed to do. You gotta die now. Like, and maybe this is why they want to have the, the, the temple to be a real thing, an actual physical building going forward through the millennium when they can sacrifice animals. Because that's plan A, apparently. The animals are plan A. But the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. They're obviously a shadow pointing forward to the substance, which is the offering of the Lamb of God, who, as the divine human, whose blood could have that kind of infinite quality to pay for the eternal sins, you know, the sins that have eternal consequence for a whole people, 
it, it just falls apart in so many fundamental ways. It's, it's as much as I, I see them, I appreciate that when I read these guys uh, between Sundays, I appreciate they're trying to wrestle with these texts, but you just have to wonder, how can you still think this way? How can you make these arguments when it runs up against so many fundamental issues of Christianity? And it, and it, and it puts you at odds with the apostles. And you have to game their, their handling of these Old Testament passages. Yes, Wayne? Don't you think maybe one of the things why they do that is, that you mentioned earlier, is most dispensationalism really falls under Arminian theology. We still have a free will. Yeah. We can afford this because, you know, it's just like we, we can uh, possibly say, oh, well, you know, Premium grace. We can either reach out and grab his hand or not. Or we can always lose our salvation because we have this free will to be able to thwart those plans. Yeah, I mean, it does go together, doesn't it? Uh, Wayne points out that uh, usually your dispensationalists are already Ar- Arminians. Not all of them. John MacArthur, uh, isn't, it, isn't it? He's a dispensationalist, but he considers himself a Calvinist, too. And he's not the only one. Uh, some of the guys I've read in these readings that I've, you know, from our preparations, there's been a few of those guys that are also uh, consider themselves at least four-point Calvinists or whatever. But, yeah, you can see how the two dovetail because, you know, the offer of a kingdom is kind of like the offer of the gospel. Um, their will thwarting God's purpose because God's too much of a gentleman to thwart, you know, or to thwart human will. Uh, yes? I was going to say, one of the things that I think we simplify it too much if we try to say that they're saying that God can be thwarted that easily. In their minds, God's this infinite clockmaker that has looked at so many variations of what could occur and has planned for all of them, and that this is the one that he hoped would come to. It, it is a vast difference. And it's the same mistake that Nicodemus was whenever he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. They're falling in the same trap that Judas did, that the, that the people that weren't believers did. They just don't understand. And a works-based righteousness makes more sense <coughs> to someone that doesn't understand the message of the gospel. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the, they're not depositing a God who's ignorant of uh, all the variations that could take place in human history. Um, what they're suggesting, many many folks, is that God foresees all the possible ways that human history could go and has picked the best one. But this, the scriptures just don't even, they, they, don't, they don't talk that way. When they, when, they, when they talk about God's election, they never talk about God's knowledge. The apostles never, the Bible never talks about what God knows when it comes to his election. Um, God, Paul's answer to any objections humans have about, uh, you know, God's will determining history, he never resorts to his knowledge. He just resorts to his grace. And it um, says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Does not the potter have the right to make of one vessel, vessel of grace, mercy, and another vessel of wrath? For their sin, so he, the the Bible never goes there. Never goes to God's knowledge when it talks about his his election, whether it comes to you know the exercise of His grace or the course that history takes. I, I'm sure I saw another hand or two along the way 
when I, yes? Yeah, also, you're making the point uh, earlier, you know, keeping in mind sort of the, the, the reason that dispensationalism as a, as a hermeneutic, as an interpretive uh, uh, system really came to the fore in the United States was that it was in opposition to a liberal hermeneutic, a, a, an unbelieving and skeptical hermeneutic. So what they, it was an attempt, and I think a, a well-intentioned attempt, to prevent the Bible from basically just going the way of, you know, being regarded as myth, as allegory, as, and so they, you know, they wanted, they took a, a more hyper-literal interpretive approach to scripture in order to rescue it from this liberal interpretive system. Um, you know, and, you know, I was thinking about, uh, I know Machen had some, he had some pretty harsh words about dispensationalism, but he also said, and this is not to contest with anything that anybody says, so it's not intended as a corrective, but more just a reminder that, that we have far more in common with our dispensational brothers and sisters than we do what, what, what Machen would consider the liberal stream of, that's, that's not even, I mean, he would say and argues persuasively that that's not even Christianity. Yeah, it's unbelief, yeah. It's unbelief, and so that we, you know, it's, but, but as brothers, as brothers and sisters, we, you know, we're, we have to interact with what they're teaching and, and point out areas where they've perhaps pushed that, the hyper-literalism to such an extreme that they end up in places that they really didn't want to be. Yeah, we can't lose sight of the fact, like I began with, that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, they're wrestling with a lot of the texts that I didn't even think until I started studying for this class that they even bothered to wrestle with. They know about how the apostles handle these things. They know that. And so they do try to wrestle with the scriptures. But I think in today's class, it kind of came out because of the interactions uh, where it does lead dispensationalism. It leads the brother or sister in Christ to the unfortunate conclusion that the, you know, the atonement is an afterthought. And the scriptures don't support that. I haven't seen in my recent battery of books that I've been reading dealing with that counterpoint. What do you do with this vicarious death of the king. If it's an afterthought, I mean, that's offensive to the average Christian. I think that if you point this out to the average dispensationalist, they may have an argument that I'm not aware of yet, and they might come back and say, well, well of, you know, our guys say this about that. I'll try and... Uh, I seem to recall, no, I thought I'd give them, a, give them an out there, and I was trying to remember something that they said about it, but I don't think that that argument was about this, this point, about, you know, the coming of the Christ, the Lamb of God, his death um, was from the beginning, the plan, and the plan A for a sinful humanity. Uh, but I can't, I can't give them that because that was, for, that was in another context. So anyway, any other comments or questions before we move on? Is it closely associated with that? Isn't it Ryrie's argument 
that there's a whole faith versus physical world uh, play, interplay, in other words, he says, I think, uh, faith is always the context, like the clockmaker thing, uh, atonement is always in scope, but the way things play out in the physical world, all the Old Testament, all these things, all the, the dispensational ages are just tests, per se, for mankind's development, and kind of like James says, it's for our motivation, it's for our seeing our sinfulness. Um... I know, they do talk that way, but what do you mean as far as the, uh, like the atonement? Are you tying it into the discussion we just had about the atonement? And, uh, yeah, Ryrie, in a sense, seems to say there's always been this upper-level faith aspect to dispensationalists. Now, clearly, it's, he's the one sort of describing it at his time. Um, but, but from what I've seen, that would be their argument. They said, well, faith has always been in play in the background. But when we read the, the Old Testament or New Testament, literally, we're seeing the physical elements of this world in a very test-like experience. That God's always been testing his people within the different dispensationalists. The tests change, but it's still just this aspect of you don't measure up to what God's will be. Yeah, I know so that the, the, always failing the test. They talk, but all that, to me, seems very man-centered and not very... Christ Christocentric. So we're saying that all the saints in the Old Testament had faith in a coming Messiah, even if they understood him in a less clear fashion that we understand him with the benefit of retrospect. We can look back in the clarity of the New Testament. We know who this Messiah was, where he came from, who his parents were, uh, and all the details provided in the New Testament. So we believe that everyone's always been justified by the same thing, by faith in this coming Messiah or the faith in the Messiah that came and will come again. Um, and I know that they talk about each dispensation being a period of testing. And, you know, based on the... Uh, the uh, you know, based on the dispensation you're in, that, that, that constitutes the nature of that test. But... Uh, I don't see how, like, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around how the, like, the testing of Abraham or the testing of Noah, based on their dispensation, ties into the question of the centrality of the atoning work of that coming Messiah. I see how it ties into the, you know, what was the nature of their faith back then? Their faith was in God and his program for them at the time. Not anything specific like the coming Messiah. So I see that, but I don't see how, you know, the atoning work of the Christ slipping through the cracks goes to the question of their faith in each dispensation. I'm just not catching that. Are you saying that the faith of folks, say, in Noah's day, that period of testing under that dispensation um, did or did not include the atoning work of the coming Christ. I think Ryrie's point is just simply, as you pointed out earlier, in the different dispensations, 
Faith is simply a belief in the knowledge of God they had at the time. Yeah, I see that. Period. Right. Everything else to Ryrie is secondary okay. tests of your obedience. I get it now. Okay, thank you. So, does everybody else follow that? That's why, that's probably why they make the faith of Old Testament saints to be ambiguous on a question that we think is central to faith, which is the work of the coming Christ for them. And just faith in God in general. God has revealed X amount of information to Noah and his generation, Y amount of information to Enoch or Seth and their generation. And they just have to have a, a general faith in God and not in a coming Messiah. And by doing that, by making their faith ambiguous on the question of a atoning work of a coming Christ, they can make it a surprise that only the faith of the church needs to be centered on. Well, obviously I'm not going to try and justify that approach, but hopefully you can better understand where they're coming from and why on that question. Thanks for pointing that out. Any other comments or questions? I think I saw another hand. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, all you really need to do is go through the Old Testament with a view towards Christ and see what you come up with. Because if you believe what Jesus says, that, the, that Moses and the prophets all bear witness of me, like he said that to in the book of John, but also in, at the end of Luke, when he meets the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opened up for them the scriptures in the Old Testament, all of which pointed to me. So the person and work of Christ are the cent central message to a fallen people in the Old Testament. It's borne witness to in all the different signs and typology and shadows of the Old Testament. Like I said, going back to Genesis 3.15, um, with the announcement of the coming seed of the woman who would destroy the works of the devil, and possibly also in the slaying of a lamb to provide them the covering for their sin, the shame of their sin. It's all bearing witness to Christ. So I guess in order to be a consistent dispensationalist, you would have to say that's not happening. That those are just part of the God's program for the time. They don't communicate a saving knowledge of the coming Christ in those shadows. Those are just parts of God's program for that time that you'd better show faith in. In me, God, the Father, in general. Yeah, I. Uh, that doesn't make me feel any better about it, actually. But, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Let's, uh, on the question of Jewishness and Gentiles. When I said before that um, the New Testament comes along and redefines Israel as Christ and those in union with him. I shouldn't say they redefine it, but they tell us what the definition always was. And that is something that generation needed to hear, and apparently our generation needs to hear too, uh, because of this difference between us and dispensationalism. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.
And verses 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, etc. What's the significance of this text for the question of who are, how do we understand Israel now? How do we understand Gentiles now? Is a Gentile a non-Jew? Is Peter writing this epistle to anyone but the churches of Jesus Christ? Look at the opening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora, if you know what that word is in Greek, uh, in Pontus, oh, I'll talk about it. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the knowledge of, foreknowledge of God the Father, etc. So he's he's talking to churches. Churches believe in Jesus, and the next chapter along, he's causing he's calling the church a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That was language in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. He's taking that language and applying it to the church. And he's saying everybody outside of the church is a Gentile. You see the reorientation being demanded of our Jew-Gentile distinction by the apostles? The apostles are telling us that the way things were defined before, as far as Jew and Gentile, those are the covenant people of God and all the nations outside of that covenant people of God. Now, the covenant people of God is understood to be rallied around Christ, and everyone outside is a Gentile, among whom keep your conduct honorable, so that they have nothing to object to in your conduct which would distance them from the gospel. So, Peter says, you're a Gentile if you're not a Christian. Not you're a Gentile if you're not a Jew, by birth. He says, you are a Gentile if you're outside the church. Yes? Thank you. 
Um, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the Jew-Gentile distinction has always, prior to the coming of Christ, and the clarity we have from, from apostolic teaching, has been in ethnic terms. Ethnic terms. Descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, that's the people of God. Everyone else, a Gentile. They're a, number, a member of the nations, other nations. So I guess that's the emphasis I'm trying to make. And in the New Covenant, it's spiritually defined. Are you united to Christ by the Spirit, worked faith, or are you not? If you are, you're a chosen race, race, a priesthood, a holy nation set apart for his own name. And if you're out of that that bond, that spiritual bond to this Messiah, you're a Gentile. Um, we can finish. I got a few more references I want to talk about from Galatians, the book of Revelation, about this redefinition, which, as I said before, is not really redefining anything. Um, like you were getting at, spiritually understood, which is how the Peter's talking here, spiritually understood, it's always been the case that the remnant within Israel was the only one truly united to him. That wasn't an ethnic thing, because there were ethnic Jews who were not truly reunited, not truly a part of the remnant. They were, they participated in the sacraments, but they didn't have the faith by which they profited from those things. So, and they inhabited the land, which was a, ward, a reward for faith, Abraham's faith, but they didn't have his faith. So it's always been the case that the true people of God has always been defined by being united to him by a saving faith. Um, and everybody else on the outside, uh, you know, is cut off from his spiritual blessings. That hasn't changed. But this reorientation in thinking away from the ethnic thing, which dispensationalism preserves. Dispensationalism preserves that ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. That the apostles turn on its ear. And they say, no, this is how it's always been. This is how you to understand Jewishness and Gentileness. Can't say gentility. <laughs> Can I? Anyway, uh, we're out of time, so... Uh, We'll just pick up with a couple of these uh, other passages I wanted to show at the beginning of next class. And I've been omitting to put at the end of every lesson what you should be studying for next week. But maybe it's more suspenseful that way. So anyway, let's, uh, let's close with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. They are the, the fulfillment, the performance of these divine promises, O oh Lord, are so much more and so much greater than simply a parcel of land. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have sent us a true temple, not built with stones, a God-man with whom we will dwell forever, through whom we will dwell forever with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. We thank you for this 
tabernacling with man that you have accomplished in Christ. Help us, O Lord, to interpret your word the way you would desire us to, receiving with glad and grateful hearts the interpretation of the prophets provided in the New Testament. And help us to be a witness to our brothers and sisters in Christ who um, have not come to understand these things yet. Uh, we believe that the apostles direct us to. And now, Lord, we pray that you would bless our spiritual worship that we are gathering together to perform uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, in this high task. Help us to uh, glorify you this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>